0: Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Uh, We've we've got a lot to talk about today. We are coming off the Supreme Court uh, nomination hearings. We have the ongoing war in Ukraine, which is in an eerie kind of way starting to seem kind of normal, that we've got this really intense shooting war right in the I don't know. I don't know if it's the center of Europe, but right, you know, kind of right there in the right there in the middle and not in a small country. Uh landmass-wise, one of the biggest countries in Europe. I don't know exactly. Maybe maybe might even be biggest after after Russia. I, I don't I don't know exactly. I shouldn't I shouldn't go in these freeform speculations. Um before we get to more news, I want to remind everybody if you were listening to this podcast, if you were a listener to this podcast and you are not a member of TPM. If you're not uh, a TPM Prime subscriber, TPM Prime AF subscriber, please consider subscribing. We are right in the middle of an annual uh, membership drive. It's really important. We need to add, we need to take more of our readers and listeners and convert them into members, subscribers. Uh, So it's really important. And uh, I certainly know, you know, there's lots of podcasts and sites, and kind of you have to subscribe to everything these days. And I uh, can't subscribe to everything. I get that. And I often have, you know, uh, some publication like, oh yeah, I should subscribe to that one. I want to read all their stuff. Want to support what they're doing. And kind of like I, I'm, I'm agreed in principle, but I just don't get to it, right? Because I'm busy and and uh, I have a short attention span and all that kind of stuff. But what we're doing during this drive is to say. Can you take a moment today and become a member and subscribe to TPM? Because it's really, really important to what we do. It makes what we do possible. More than 80% of the revenue that, that, that funds our whole operation comes from membership fees. So a uh, pretty small amount of money for, for most, of, most of us, uh, $5.99 a month, $60 a year, um, pretty manageable. So we'd really appreciate it if you would uh, join us. Make today the day. So uh, let's get back to the news. As I said, um, we have these uh, Supreme Court, the Supreme Court uh, nomination hearings. And just before we started recording this episode, I was talking to my co-host Kate, uh, Kate Rika. And Kate was there in the hearings, covered them uh, for us. So we're going to go over all the kind of the ins and outs of that. But one of the things she talked about, which is something that is unique Uh, maybe not unique, but it is pretty distinct about our operation, is that Kate had the experience of, you know, the other news organizations have a team covering the hearings. And they kind of, you know, sort of like when, uh, you know, like a basketball game, you sub one person in, you know, send another person in, the other person comes out, takes a breather, maybe they do some tweeting, maybe they write up their piece. But TPM is a very, very small operation. And so Kate was there for the entire thing you know, listening to all the stuff, doing most of the um, the live blog that we, were, that we were doing. So that is, I want to talk about um, some of the experience of doing that. But in terms of our drive, this is also kind of, this is a key aspect of what TPM is about. We're a small operation. We do things a certain way. You know, you pick this stuff up from CBS or NBC. I mean, we've got alums at both of those places, but you know, <laughs> could you, would you tell the difference if it was ABC or CBS or NBC? You'll tell the difference when it's us. We're a unique place. And uh, part of doing what we do is that you've got Kate and she's there for the entire time while, you know, the other folks are out there. I don't know, take a tweeting break, take a walk, <laughs> come out and, you know, go out and have a few tacos, have a, you know, do whatever you're doing. So, uh, let's, let's talk about that first, Kate, uh, let's talk about what it is like, you know, everybody sees when they watch, you know, the kind of the clips from these hearings, they see those kind of rows of people in the back, you know, you see reporters and stuff. What's it like? What's What's it like being there? And how long were you there? Like walk us through the whole thing.
1: Right. So it's funny because kind of being from a smaller outlet presents unique challenges all the way through something like this. For example, I kind of started communicating with the Senate Judiciary Committee staff the day that Katanji Brown-Jackson was announced as the nominee because I knew this would be a really kind of big-ticket hearing and that it was going to be hard for us to get a seat. So, you know, I kind of had to do that from the beginning. There was a lot of back and forth. I ultimately managed to get a seat in the room for Wednesday. And it's just, it's hard because other places... I'm talking your politicos, your CNNs, places that have huge congressional teams, you, you just don't have to fight so tooth and claw like that. It's more, you know, because these people are always, you know, and I'm not trying to uh, say this, there's something kind of insidious going on. They've got people who have got the bandwidth to just be on the hill every day. That's what they can do because their team is big enough that it allows for that. So kind of they get seats every day. They're an assumed presence there. Uh, you know, so there's there's that kind of logistical piece of it so then uh you arrive and it's funny because it's like there's uh there are press seats in the front of the room that have a, a long table for your laptops and then you got the cheap seats on the sides that have no table I was in a cheap seat um which while I'm in the prime of my youth means that I had to kind of sit there for like you know whatever, 10, 12 hours hunched over my laptop and I had the back pain of of an octogenarian by the end of the day. But so anyway, we're in these seats and you've got what you see on C-SPAN, the dais is in front of us, kind of facing us. Um, And something that I think is hard to see on C-SPAN is like you've got the big kind of fancy wooden dais and then a, a lower one and the senators were spread out between them. I'm not sure if that's like a COVID precaution or what, but that's kind of how they're sitting right now. And I promise it felt very important and special to me to be there. So take this complaint in that light, which is that they got to invest in better chairs for the (laughs) plebes. We had like these little crappy plastic folding chairs basically. And the senators have these like cushy thrones. I was considering just dragging one over to my seat, but so it's like that. And then for an event like this, which is kind of big and special. Uh, for people, they give out tickets. The lawmakers are given tickets that they can give to staff members or people who kind of want to be there. But there's such a high volume of people who want to share in the moment of Judge Jackson's you know, confirmation process that they shuttle guests in and out, I think probably every 30 minutes or so. So everyone shuffles in, kind of dressed in their like capital formal best and sits there and listens. And then Oh, and outside, there's like a long line outside the room for people's tickets. So basically, we all come in there. You know, it looks like it does on C-SPAN with, uh, you know, the people get to ask, senators get to ask their questions. I would say an interesting part that you can't see on TV is what the other lawmakers are doing while the primary lawmaker is talking. A lot of that is being on their phones. Very, very much of that. Um, There's some people kind of show up for their questioning and leave. I would say that's not common. But to call out one in particular, yesterday, Tom Cotton kind of strolled in with his coffee, hextured Jackson, and like, that was it. You know, Lindsey Graham, after he did his little shouty fit, he stormed out and left for the day. And then you've got people like... The participation award has got to go to Cory Booker, who buttoned seat the whole time except when he was voting and also did that kind of good student thing where, you know, they sit there and nod to let the <laughs> professor know that someone's listening, that Cory Booker gets the award for that.
0: Is it, I, I'm all, I have, I, I haven't been up there in a very long time, but I was always struck that when you're there, it all looks much smaller. Yeah. Th- that kind of like, you know, you see that you see that they're all the, the senators are all spread out kind of in a not a semicircle, but, you know, kind of a an arcing um, mm-hmm. row of seats. And it kind of looks like, you know, across an expanse is is the is the person testifying, sitting at a big table. And it, I don't know, it just seems much bigger. And you see it in person like, wow, we're in like a little room here and just we're all, you know. Mm-hmm. Was that your sense too? Yeah,
1: and part of it is the back wall is marble and has the big kind of fancy Senate crest in the middle. And so that's the backdrop when most of the senators are talking, but it's just the one wall that's like that. So it is to some degree, almost like a TV set, you know, like yeah. the fancy stuff is gonna be right behind the, the cameras. Um, yeah, and I think before we kind of move on to the content of the hearing, um, uh, just a piece on the way our, our reporting is a little bit different is that, to some degree with something like this, you know, I'm competing with a lot of other reporters and we're all getting the same information, right? So it's, you know, to some degree kind of hard just in that it feels sometimes that things like Twitter or even something like Twitter, which seems kind of silly, dumb, superficial, it's it's a really important part of reporting. It's a really important part of reaching people. And I personally freaking hate Twitter because I think it is so, so hard to convey context in a tweet at all. And I think that just so kind of aggravates the already existing problem of just tweeting out quotes that are not true or kind of particularly Republican antics with no context for people to understand why they're dangerous or anything like that. So I I try to be kind of hyper-conscious of doing that in my tweets, but it's hard then because you know, I'm sitting kind of side by side with like you know, a CNN reporter, or Washington Post reporter, or whatever, who will kind of blast out the same thing that I'm reporting on, but sans context to like eight bajillion followers. And I'm like trying to ground people in the in what's going on. But, you know, I have a much smaller reach and I have to depend on the firepower of, say, a Josh Marshall to kind of amplify uh, what I'm trying to put out there. So it's this it's this weird balance and it's this weird dance. Um, and Those kind of social aspects of it do play into everything, right? Because it's also lawmakers know better the people who are on the Hill every day. Um, And that cuts in many ways, right? Because they both, that can make lawmakers more willing to talk to reporters. It can make it hard for those reporters to ask combative, aggressive questions because they don't want to be cut off from their source of information. Um, I think there's a dynamic where reporters who are there all the time are good friends with each other and spend all their time with each other. And it can be hard, I think, to have a different viewpoint on things when kind of your, your peers and colleagues are all, you know, you're, you're with them and communicating with them so much. So there's a, a, all of this stuff going on. Um, and it's just, it's a, it's a weird, interesting experience. And I think, you know, just before we move on, a, a point you made too about the smallness of the room. It put moments like the Hectoring from, you know, Cruz and Holly and Cotton and Graham, it felt so, so different to be in the room than it felt the other days when I had to cover it on TV. Because you realize they're only like thirty feet apart from her. Yeah, and when so- you see when
0: you see it on TV, it's almost like you know, if you're in a baseball stadium or, or, right. or kind of like what you might imagine the house floor is like, although when you're there, the house floor seems really small too. Right. Um, but I, I take your point. It, it, It's more uncomfortable because you're Much kind of like, you're like, you're right. You're right there. Like this is, that's that kind of feeling you feel when you're like, I sympathize more with her, but you kind of feel uncomfortable for everybody. Ugh, like this is not comfortable.
1: It's like when you see, you know, like a fight breakout in a story you're in or something. It is profoundly uncomfortable to see someone making someone else uncomfortable. And that is so heightened when she's sitting right there and she looks like a human and doesn't look like a character on TV. And then her husband's behind her and her daughter's behind her. And you're watching you know, these kind of Republican senators like angle themselves to make sure the camera is getting them and doing their gesticulating. And then it's so weird because you have this drag out thing where you have, you know, Senator Holly being like, do you regret it? Do you regret your sentences? These like really, really intense moment. And then boom, it's over. And the mic passes to a Democrat. And, you know, the Republicans are just like go on their phones or leave the room or sip their coffee. And it's, it's like, that you put on this mask and you perform and then you take it off. But the person who was kind of subjected to the attack is still sitting right there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of the, uh, the fakeness Mm -hmm. of all of it. I mean, this is different, but I do remember uh, during uh, president Trump's first impeachment, There was this moment where uh, Lindsey Graham, and I, I wasn't there, I saw this, I either heard it reported or saw it, you know, kind of on TV or something like that. After the day's, you know, hearings or session or whatever, he ran into Schiff and he's like, hey, great work there, man. You really brought it. And you're sort of like, what? Like, you know, he's out there saying, you know, you know, just what you thought Lindsey Graham was saying. But you see in moments like that, like it's all for show, right? Mm-hmm. It's 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 all for show and 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 yeah.
1: It's similar to remember when Diane Feinstein hugged Graham and it like set the whole internet ablaze. It's like I totally get that, but also when you see it in person, you kind of understand how that could happen because there is just it's not like anything else I've seen in my life. It really is a widely accepted performative thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's and it's also, and this is, you know, this goes very deep into lots of stuff about, you know, sort of insiders and outsiders and the perception of being an outsider, perception of being an insider. When I lived in DC, I was all the kind of the people, you know, the conservatives, the right wingers. I, I knew all those people. I'm not sure I was friends with them, but I was acquaintances with them. I wasn't, you know, there was no discomfort, hung out with those people, whatever. And, and, um, a lot of that's just, and, and it's funny when I, when I lived in DC and I lived in DC from 1999 to 2004 till the end of 2004. So the first few years of, of just before TPM and the first few years of TPM. And, uh, the reason I moved to New York had nothing. It was for personal reasons. I moved there to get married basically but there are pros and cons on both sides of that. One of the things that I found grounding about living in DC is if like, I kind of, if you, if you sort of like haul off and just lay into someone, you're probably going to see them. And if you see them, they might say, hey man, that w- you know, what you said really, that was, that's not true. You know, you're kind of laying it on a bit thick, and that's not really, and, and, you know, maybe, maybe it is true, but it does at least, there's two sides of it. You want to kind of not worry about the discomfort of seeing someone in person. On the other hand, brushes you back a little bit in ways that are positive because when you're writing, you say, I'm gonna I I wanna be I wanna be solid enough on this and feel like I can stand behind it. So if they come up and say, hey, that wasn't fair, I'll say, like, you know what? I think it is fair. And and that kind of that just keeps things a little more realistic. Now, the other thing, when I when I left DC, I felt liberated in a way that I think I was, I wasn't like, I mean, I never really ran in those circles, but I kind of did. I was like adjacent to those circles. I kind of like, I'm not, I'm not worried about seeing you. So I don't care. You know, and and it's interesting, both sides. And and I know this is kind of a different point than, than the one you're making, but I can see that whole, th- I mean, I, when he, when she did that, it was sort of like, like, okay, we get the problem. Because, and that was like, I do think a lot of during the Kavanaugh hearings, I think a lot of it was not performative. I, I think that I, I know that a lot of the Democrats were very upset, and a lot of the Republicans were very upset. I think it was it was pretty real. Um, and her, you know, <laughs> you got to read the room, right? That was not reading reading the room, and and uh, you know, it it was. It's it's that kind of thing where that we've, I think we have talked about at different points over the years with the podcast. Who are you there for? Is is it up there kind of like for people can have a, you know, what the best way, most enjoyable way, most satisfying way to do senatoring? Or is it kind of like there's a group of voters who put you there for a reason? We paid the money, we gave you the votes, and how fun it is is not our thing. And that you All those things are... Anyway, I've taken you way off uh, the...
1: That's interesting. And it does kind of tie into one of my thoughts watching this, which is I very much agree with you that I think the emotion of the Kavanaugh hearing was genuine. And a lot of that is because it was not premeditated. It largely came out as the hearings had begun. Yep. Um, I think people, whether they agreed with her or not, found what Christine Blasey Ford had to say. I guess compelling is too positive, but they felt it. It was you know? intense. It was yeah. intense. Um, and the difference this time was that the bulk of the discomfort came with the Republican attacks on her sentencing of people who possessed child pornography. It was something that Josh Hawley had telegraphed before the hearings. I am now convinced because he is more junior than Ted Cruz. So he knew his questioning would come later. And he knew that Ted would steal his thunder, which he very much did. Um So it did not feel genuine. It did not. I mean, Cruz was unable to cloak his excitement under the veil of concern that some of the others pulled off. And it Even if you kind of came into it not knowing the context, not knowing what they're getting at with this kind of attack, there's no way for a second that you could think it was any kind of genuine fact finding because to begin with, it was based on, I think, seven cases. And then from that, they plucked out lines that they thought were damning for her. And when she tried to respond and explain about the complexities that goes into sentencing people who possessed child pornography. They interrupted her. They wouldn't let her get a word out. Uh, they asked the same questions over and over and over. They asked about the same case over and over and over. They asked questions, you know, they would kind of preface their questions with, you know, this involved prepubescent children. And you think it's, okay. you know what I mean? It was just, none of it was genuine. And that-
0: Let me ask you a question for, for people who didn't watch all the hearings. Mm-hmm. Did, did she- uh, was she the judge in, in a particularly large amount of, of child pornography cases? Like, is there, is there uh, other than the QAnon backdrop and the fact that, you know, child pornography, the production of it, the selling is, is upsetting for everybody. But why, but again, besides the QAnon backdrop, was she particularly lenient? Did she, was she a judge who only dealt with, with child pornography cases? What's the, give us the context.
1: I mean, that's the hard thing. There's not really a lot of context. Basically, she gave out some sentences that were less than what the prosecutors were seeking, which to anyone who knows anything about law is not like a rare occurrence. You know, you've right. got prosecutors usually seeking higher sentences. You've got the defense seeking lower sentences. You've got the government sometimes in between. You've got the probation office. And so I think I, I really think they just kind of found something that they knew would stick because it's awful and it makes your stomach hurt to hear about. Um, and so you kind of had this behavior where their performances, again, m- even more than anything else, were just incredibly repetitive. It got to the point where she said, I've explained this many times. I'm not going to do it anymore. And then Holly tried to turn that into a mini scandal of like, well, you're not answering my question. You're not answering my question. But the problem is when you've got behavior like that, that's odious and meant to humiliate her and meant to imply that she is almost no better than a pedophile, that's the time when I really, really strongly feel that you need to have Democrats who have the chutzpah to be like, we're not entertaining this, you know, to take a tone of how dare you. Can you... Can you you imagine even for a moment what their reaction would be if Amy Coney Barrett was called one degree better than a pedophile after Republicans spent the entirety of her hearing focusing much more on her motherhood than her legal background? It Mm -hmm. just wouldn't have happened. And here you've got Jackson sitting in front of her her child. And you've got Holly saying she endangers children. She as a judge endangers children. And I'm sorry, but that's beyond the pale. And you've got to break out of your we're just senators joshing around with each other mold at that point. And Durbin really, I don't think he could. I mean, he at times he would kind of try to stop people from interrupting. But for, you know, for all the talk of kind of how Feinstein is old and over the hill and can't handle it anymore. I'm not sure that he really did much better of a job. I think the most effective rebuttal in the whole hearings came from Maisie Hirono, who's so junior, you know, on the committee that you had to wait a million hours before it got to her. But then she kind of brought up all these other judges who had given out sentences in child porn cases that were, you know, below the sentencing guidelines. And that Republicans had voted to confirm. So, you know, her whole line of questioning was Judge So-and-so gave out this sentence. You know, are my Republican colleagues soft on, on, uh, you know, possessors of child porn? And it was really, really effective because it showed that the argument is silly and that it doesn't make any sense. But for the most part, it was this, completely bizarre rhythm where you would have these Republicans hurling these horrible accusations and seeming to delight in sharing the details of these just heinous crimes. And then the baton would pass to a Democrat who would say, so you are on the debate team. And it's just like, what are we doing here? What are right. we doing? It went right. from a crescendo of tension into a soporific lull, and you just found yourself kind of looking at the member list and waiting to see who the next kind of <laughs> gross Fox News-seeking Republican was going to be, who was going to pull out his next chart with uh, with all these kind of accusations on them.
0: You know, it's 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 funny with Dick Durbin. He he is kind of uh, has these kind of get along, go along tendencies. And, you know, the funny thing was, I looked this up and it was actually a little more than I thought. Dick Durbin is not a young guy. He's 77 years old. I was actually a little surprised. I figured he was like, I I figured he was like in his early seventies, maybe 71. He's 77. I mean, he's spry. He's, I mean, you know, I, I've, I know, I know people in their late seventies. They're, they're you know, there's, they've, a lot of them have slowed down a lot. Um, but there is this kind of broader issue that, um, a lot of the, a lot of people up on Capitol Hill are not young people. Um, they've been doing it for a long time. And, uh, you know, it's funny you have, uh, God, what's the, um, totally spacing on the the junior Senator from Delaware, the guy who, uh,
1: Coons? Just,
0: yeah, Coons, you know, he is kind of in that mold of, you know, we need more, we need to reach across the aisle mm-hmm. and and always that kind of stuff. And I, I I get that. You know, to me it's sort of like, yeah, if there was that'd be nice, but it's that's not how we're doing things now. <laughs> you know, and I really don't think it's uh it's the Democrats doing Yeah, I don't I don't I struggle with how to come down on that because the sociology and the characterology of the two parties, it's different. Totally. I mean, you, you Democrats play to cameras, Democrats have their issues, but you would not see something comparable to this. You mm-hmm. would not see Democrats with this kind of level of, of character assassination with, you know, nonsensical attacks it just it just doesn't work that way and it's not even because um, it, it's not i mean i'm sure some, you know some democrats might if it worked for them it wouldn't work for them the and and you can say well there's no fox news well yeah there's no fox news but it's because a fox news of the left wouldn't work the same way because if you had if you had someone doing something like that, now Republicans would say, "Hey, Kavanaugh, it was terrible. They attacked, blah 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 blah." But there was a woman who had a fairly, you know, who sounded very credible and had a very upsetting story. They didn't make that up, and they didn't expect it, right? It was really out of the blue. I mean, they definitely didn't want. Cavanaugh to be confirmed but they didn't the people that was not expected it wasn't like when he was nominated everybody's like oh you know you know his rep you know you know his me too rep it, it wasn't that wasn't uh, that wasn't a thing so it's not just you know Fox exists because the Republican party the sociology of the Republican party the leadership of the Republican party the voters of the Republican party react act and react to certain things in different ways and I kind of get I kind of get what the, Dem- you know, where the Democrats are coming from at some level to kind of, you know, we don't want to dignify this, or we don't want to kind of make it the other hand, like, no, she's not a pedophile. You know, you want to kind of, it's tough. Um, I, I, and, I, and I have no sense of like how it is played more generally. And and we haven't even, I mean, what we have only barely touched on is kind of sitting out there, and everyone knows it, that this is basically a way to play to the Pizzagate, QAnon you know, Hillary, you know, has an international ring, a pedophile ring, all that kind of craziness. And this is this is their way to kind of ingratiate themselves with that world and also to have some deniability. And that's just, you know, that's the politics that we live in.
1: Yeah, I think and I, I do want to get more into the embrace of the Q QAnon stuff. But on the point of what Democrats do, I think I, I very much agree with you. And I think it's so easy to watch and be kind of infuriated by Democrats not looking able to meet the moment, by Democrats looking like they still live in this era of like John McCain comedy when we've got Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz are the party now. But I very much agree with you that it's. I think it's easy to come to that conclusion. It's much harder to take the next logical step, which is, so what should they do? You know, how do you combat it? How do you debate Someone to whom facts don't matter and to whom the optics of what you're saying is much, much more important than the context. For people who, I wrote this up and this is on our site now, but Holly, Cruz, Cotton, Graham all got spots on Fox News last night and they did so without fear of a fact check because they knew that the host would cheer on these accusations and bolster them. And now we're in a situation where the big fear and what some like Don Jr. and judicial watch are trying to do is now take this misinformation campaign and use it to sway Manchin and Cinema out of voting for her. And now it doesn't appear at this moment like that is working. And earlier in the week when Manchin was asked about this, he was basically like, well, who's saying it? Oh, Holly. Well, you know, yeah, Well, there it is. You know, he seemed kind of rightly dismissive of the source. But it that is that has been effective before.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's I find it hard to know what to do with, because that's the biggest kind of fault of Democrats that I see in this, which is there is still this tendency to entertain it, even when it's kind of ridiculous and a character assassination, you know, you had the Republicans all sign, well, all except Ben Sass, sign this letter saying they want access to the pre-sentencing reports in these child pornography cases, which to be clear, Jackson did not write. They were, you know, it's not like that was her opinion that's now sealed. And the reason that they're sealed is obviously because of the information they contain. The- and those
0: are, those are, th- those are done by like a government office that kind of collects the how how that's, are those produced? That's again? my
1: that's my understanding and it, they are replete with details about the crime committed. So to me that's something you know that's a that's a Ted Cruz project right saying like they're withholding information that we need to see how she sentenced these cases when the whole premise is not true and the further degree of that, that you need to see details of horrible crimes committed against children with or without the victim's permission, you know, by the way, is just ridiculous. Like, uh, to me, you get that letter and you're like, yeah, okay, we'll work on it. And you just stonewall for a while until Republicans kind of find their next shiny thing. But instead, Democrats on the committee are like talking about it. And, you know, I agree with Durbin, who's saying he won't have it on his conscience to have potentially details of these crimes, you know, leaked out and, and everything like that. But
0: well, I would think that's the point. I mean, that's obviously the point. The point right. is to get them. And I'm sure they're they are filled with really awful crimes and terrible things that happen to people. And the point is just to kind of, you know, crack those open and find uh, terrible things and just sort of, you know, splash them on her. Right. And that's the whole point. And it's pretty it's pretty straightforward and. Yeah.
1: But that's my concern. Like we there is there's we there still just isn't a good way for Democrats to push back against this disinformation or to find some way of invalidating it without giving it a platform that de facto raises its credibility just because mm-hmm. it's being talked about in these forums. You know, now it's a topic of discussion among the Senate Judiciary Committee that's on C SPAN. And that just lends it a layer of gravitas that it doesn't deserve. And that is that's still a puzzle to me. I just don't and obviously Democrats haven't figured out how to do it either, but it's just not it's not clear to me how you fight back against something like this when it's rooted in comfort with lying and a platform that will amplify those lies. Yeah, I mean, I
0: you know, I actually think it's pretty straightforward. You just say, look, you know, we know this is normal judge process. You know, different sentences are handed out. You are using this because in your world you have all these crazy conspiracy theories and that's that's the kind of the mess of your party you know just whole kind of universes of lies and you want to kind of you want to, you want that wind in your sails and we know what you're doing and we're just not even going to participate we're not going to get into whether or not you see this we know what you're doing we know exactly what you're doing and you know what we're doing and we're not going to play along period and i do think that is that is just the answer you guys your party is a mess you have bad people liars in your party that create these whole ecosystems of lies everybody knows it everybody talks about it and not only do you not are you not brave enough to do anything about it you want to benefit from it and that's what you're doing here and we all know it and you just want to pick through this to kind of you know have your cake and eat it too but we're not even going to we're not even going to play along because you're not being straight you're playing games and that's it and I do think that's the answer. And, yeah. and and uh I wish whoever would say it, I, I think any Democrat who says, Well, I I I I don't agree, but you know, I, I for the process we need to consider does the Senate need No, it doesn't. Because this is you're just lying. And and this is about your cowardice, about you're trying to lie to people, about how you're trying to profit from liars. So no.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's totally right. Let's talk about the the piece of this that is Pizzagate has, for all intents and purposes, like as we've seen from this hearing, become a tenant of the Republican Party. I mean, this is really the first time that we've seen such a full-fledged example of the kind of recesses of QAnon bleeding fully into the Republican mainstream. And it's not even just the four that we've been talking about who are kind of the usual suspects of trying to get on Fox News at all costs. Like, you know, John Cornyn kind of mentioned it. It came out, well, Blackburn's kind of crazy, but others kind of, if they weren't willing to go into the gross child porn world would allude to a soft on crime thing. I mean, it's clearly become a mainstream thing. And that's kind of shocking because this started out as a very, you know, very fringy thing. And it was always, always defined by an obsession with sexual crimes done to children. That was there from the beginning. And it, Kind of grew into the crimes are being perpetrated by our political enemies, by Hillary Clinton, um, you know, John Podesta, Barack Obama, what have you, and it all ties into this kind of older idea about you know the the shadowy cabal of elites that are pulling the strings that are nothing is what it seems, but that still always comes back to this weird, weird obsession with with child sex trafficking, and now really just the fact that. Jackson has kind of sentenced child porn cases was enough of a connection to pull her into that world as someone who is a a sympathizer to these kind of child porn possessors. So I mean, what do you make of that 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 it's bled in quickly in the absence of trump even?
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's uh honestly, it just doesn't I, I can't even it doesn't surprise me because I know that is the world that we currently live in and uh the republican party is uh made up of and controlled by about 30 percent of the electorate that is you know revanchist christian nationalist what you know whatever you want to call it the trump thing and uh this is this is their world and if you want to operate in the republican party you need to you need to cater to that and that's just that is the world that we're in and and you know, it's raining today where I am. I don't really think anything of it because I know it rains, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's honestly kind of where I am because it 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 is sort of stunning. And yet we kind of know this is true. This isn't the first time that you've had Republicans trying to, uh, you know, trying to be cue adjacent for lack of a better word. They can't actually say, I want to have hearings into this, into the, what is it? Ping pong pizza? What was the place
1: oh. called? Comet
0: ping pong. Comet, yeah, comet <laughs> ping pong. Uh, I want to find out what's going on in the basement there or something like that. But they, they know what they need to appeal to. And that's just how, that's how these folks work. And, um, you know, it, 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 it's funny because it used to be, you know, 25 years ago, it used to be, well, they're, they're for the gays. You know, gay teachers. And you know what gay teachers do with little boys? You know that kind of stuff so in a, in a sense, you had a kind of a a not totally dissimilar moral panic framework that was focused in a different way because it was it was fine to sort of vilify gay people, mainly gay men, but you know gay men lesbians blah 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 i mean believe me that was you know you had um one of the one of the one of the big thing God, when was that exactly it was actually part of I mean, I remember this because I was a little boy. Um, it was part of one of the activism cycles that actually brought Harvey Milk to prominence. But there was a referendum, a you know, proposition in California that I think it was in the mid late seventies, and it was basically that you couldn't you couldn't have gay teachers in the public schools. Or and I don't know exactly how they. I mean, it's so it's so unbelievable. You know, now kind of like what. But this was a this was a thing. And it was funny because it was actually, I'm trying to remember now. I think Ronald Reagan was already not governor anymore, but I think even he opposed it. And and Reagan himself was always never kind of that, you know, he came out of Hollywood. He, you know, kind of he lived in that world. So he was happy to get on board with that stuff, but not that close kind of stuff. In any case, that used to be normal that part of the right was basically saying you can't give gay people rights or let them teach in schools or let them rent an apartment because they're going to get to the kids and they're going to molest the kids. This was just normal. (laughs) I mean, normal in the sense that that was just happened all the time. That was a normal part of politics. And that was... So in a way, I'm trying to get my head around whether this is like, is this does that mean it's very different or it's or it's not different it's it is part of some sort of comparable moral panic politics so maybe things don't change that much I don't know
1: I mean I guess it's like if you look at all the stuff with trans kids now coming out of southern states and even abortion has always been fought on the battleground of children and babies it's you know the whole anti-abortion movement is predicated on referring to, you know, unborn children. That language is, you know, very on purpose. So, I I mean, it is a good point that a lot of these kind of culture wars are fought on the battleground of children and that it's not a new practice for Republicans to say that their political enemies or their enemies of any kind are not just bad they're doing the worst thing you can imagine which is hurting children
0: mm-hmm. i mean it's funny you know i have to i have to mention i saw this i saw this press release the governor i'm pretty certain that i have this right um the governor of utah who obviously is a republican how could he not be Yeah, just vetoed one of these bills one of these trans sports bills and he put out a statement and it was very, uh, it, it was a powerful statement because how I would describe it, he was basically saying, look, I'm a conservative guy. I've got a hard time getting my head around the trans thing, right? And, and Mormonism and, not, you know, very conservative, whatever. But he said, you know, but I've listened. And, and, and he basically pointed out there is, I guess there is one child in the whole state Who is a trans girl who is playing on a female team? One, one child. And there's like three, I guess, trans boys who are playing. And he makes the point like, none of them are champions. They're just, and, you know, he, and he goes into the stuff about suicidality. And, and it was just, it was just very powerful because he's like, you know what? I I can't say I understand all this stuff completely, but are we really doing this about like, Two kids in the whole state who are are probably feeling more whole and are more secure in in their lives and not going to hurt themselves because they're playing a sport and like yes you know there's that those memes you see I guess there's one um, trans woman swimmer who's like the big poster person for this issue um, it was I don't know it was just uh, it's worth looking up it was sort of like. You're like, okay, sometimes people step outside the moment. And and he had this thing where he just said, you know what, I, I try to be try to bring it back to just compassion, don't hurt people, and I just don't think we can support this. And it was it was very powerful.
1: Yeah, and I I don't think Spencer Cox is the only one to do that. If I'm remembering correctly, I think Asa Hutchinson of yeah, the governor of Arkansas yeah. has done, did a similar thing and kind of Cited similar reasoning, like the theme of kind of like their kids. Are we really going to go after kids like this kind of thing? Yeah. Um, yeah. No. That I. The statement is very powerful, and uh, we're kind of running out of time. And the other thing that I did want to talk about from the hearings before we wrap up is that we also got a sense, you know, kind of the the imminent fall of Roe was very much in the background of these hearings. Um, A lot of Republicans spent their time talking about, you know, let's talk about wrongly decided precedent and when it's okay to overturn precedent, you know. But more interestingly, a lot of them also, I think, gave indicators of where the right wing movement is going to go after they win on Roe, kind of what precedents are going to be in the crosshairs next. Obergefell came up a lot, same sex marriage. Um, You had Marsha Blackburn brought up. Uh, you know, the right to privacy that let married couples use birth control in Griswold versus Connecticut. This didn't happen out in the hearings, but got a lot of headlines outside of them when you had Mike Braun uh, say that loving was wrongly decided and that it should go back to the States to decide about interracial marriage, which I think hit particularly hard considering that Katanji Brown-Jackson is married to a white man and was, you know, on the stand at the time. So we are getting indications, and this has come up in all my conversations with kind of legal experts around abortion and the next uh, kind of front of that, is that as soon as you get this really big, big, big win for these people, I mean, you know, decades in the making, the overturning of Roe, that other precedent won't be safe because so much of it, is of a piece, is of mm-hmm. the same idea. You know, this came up a lot in the hearings too. Like, why do we have unenumerated rights? We shouldn't have unenumerated rights. So much is an unenumerated right. You know, <laughs> the Constitution just doesn't cover that much. So it, it was interesting, I think, that we're getting kind of the tip of well, the Well, It does sphere. seem like when,
0: when they are in power, Republicans are fine with Second Amendment and nothing else.
1: Exactly. When they're in yep. power. Yeah.
0: One thing I have a hard time getting my head around, and it's worth noting that Loving is, you know, comes from a much different, uh, you know, kind of jurisprudential branch than Griswold, Roe, you know, it's, it's, let's put it this way. I would say that Loving is just a direct, clear, and unavoidable product of the 14th Amendment. It is really clear cut in a way that Griswold and Roe are not as clear cut. That doesn't mean I don't support them. I'm just saying that they are th- there's a more complex, you know, a more complex and indirect reasoning behind them. But what I'm what I'm struck by when this comes up with Griswold is that like, you know, there is a substantial minority in this country that does not pe- think people should be allowed women should be allowed to get abortions. There is a bigger group that is is not comfortable with the idea. We know this. Are there really people out there who can, you know, you go to the CVS and you see the big rack of condoms, right? (laughs) And like, you know, obviously, that's, I I bring that up because that's visible, right, in a way that birth control pills are not, probably should be, and this whole other issue, whether you should need to, you know, kind of uh, go to the doctor, blah, 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 blah. But like, it's a little weird to me, because, you know, I know that I know the Catholic Church is teaching on birth control. But as a political matter, as just the world we live in, I really, I find it hard to believe that anybody thinks that has much political traction. I don't know if I'm crazy, but like, you know, if you're really like, you wore a condom, what were you thinking? I mean, I don't even, (laughs) I saw where that was going. I don't want to get into what you were thinking. But, um, is anybody living in that world where, like, birth control, that's just, it's a bridge too far.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, the Griswold thing came from Marsha Blackburn, who is one of the nuttiers, (laughs) but, but, she takes her cues very much from the right-wing media ecosystem. I mean, like, her questions in this hearing were a word cloud of what you would see on primetime Fox News to the point that a lot of it you know was hard to follow but I, mean, I,
0: I guess I'm saying I can only I can almost follow the Pizzagate stuff more because <laughs> I get like you're crazy. you want to believe your your political opponents are evil like evil mm-hmm. not bad, evil. And so you kind of think like are they child pornographers like oh because child pornography obviously is pretty bad. That almost, that politics makes more sense to me than kind of like the country is overrun with birth control. When is, when is it going to be enough? Yeah. I, I just.
1: I mean, I agree with you <laughs> yet at the same time, you know, I graduated from Georgetown in 2017 and while I was there, the on-campus, uh, you know, medical unit would not fill birth control prescriptions. So.
0: Yeah. I guess I at least, I at least with, look, with the Catholic church, they have obviously Georgetown's a Catholic university. It's from the Jesuits, right? Yep. Okay. That's a doctrine. So kind of like, okay, like, you know, you're working within that framework and, and you're Catholic university, you, you know, okay, kind of get it. That's your rules. You know, uh, Jews wear tzitzis, you know, there's all sorts of ritual. I mean, it's not ritual and but whatever. Religions are strange, but for the law to kind of say like, I mean, again, it's, it's this kind of thing I think about, like, it is just, it was certainly different 50 years ago, But like, there's the whole, there's an aisle in CVS. Yeah. It couldn't be more normal.
1: I mean, I think, though, that is an interesting question in general, which is, We've seen that even though Mitch McConnell basically keeps trying to push this idea of like, you know, keep this stuff to yourself, just stop talking about it. We're, we'll win the midterms if you don't cr- do anything that creates this big backlash. That Republicans are intrinsically unable to not talk about this stuff, even when it's unpopular. And that I think is a really interesting question, which is Rose about to fall. Other precedents are like within reach, you know? If we are headed for a world where Republicans are dead set on overturning Obergefell, on, I don't know, overturning Loving, I can't imagine, but overturning Griswold. I mean, those things would be super enervating to their base, to that, to maybe that 30% we were talking about. But does that risk? dislodging them from their comfortable position right now, the idea that they're going for these things that people now are very comfortable regarding as fundamental rights, is a backlash to that great enough to kind of threaten their momentum? Will that idea of the unpopularity of going for those things affect their actions at all?
0: Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I have a hard time well, this is one of the things about how we structure the judicial system, that, you know, those uh, six justices, they're they're a law unto themselves yeah. for as long as they're alive. Um, and uh, certainly some of them would probably be into this stuff. And to some extent, some of them probably don't care about the electoral consequences for the Republican Party. Um, yeah, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I guess I wanted to end on because we've spent a lot of time talking about the Republican behavior in these hearings, which I think is really important and does give us really, really important kind of guideposts as to where the party is and where it's going. And it's important to know that and to talk about it, because otherwise it just kind of happens in the dark. But I do want to say that I thought Judge Jackson performed really well. I thought the most impressive that she was to me is in the few times she got the chance to actually kind of explain her legal decisions. Um, I thought she was really, really good at translating complicated stuff into layman's language. And a compelling thing to me is that, you know, it's already a joke that she writes really long opinions and she talked about that, but she said, and she does it very purposefully because she wants people to understand why she decided the way that she did, especially considering that people who come before her in the courtroom you know, especially as a defense uh, criminal defender are, you know, they're not lawyers and they don't have degrees and they don't necessarily understand this stuff. So she wants people to understand why she's making a decision and how she came to it and what that means. And I think that's really important. And especially because if she gets confirmed, she's going to be spending a whole lot of her time writing dissents and joining in dissents. And I think having clear, driving, powerful dissents, even just for kind of posterity at this moment, is mm-hmm. really important. So, I don't know. That's a, that's a positive that I saw in these hearings that were dominated by really cynical, uh, craven behavior.
0: Right, right, right. Well, we live in a, we live in a, um, a disordered time in many yes. ways. Um, <laughs> let me remind people uh, that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You get 25% off your order if you go to Grady'scoldbrew.com and use the promo code TPM. So give it a try. Uh, it's really great stuff. I mean, I, I am too addicted to it. Um, but anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's the best iced coffee around and they support our efforts. And also, remember, we are in our membership drive. If you are not a member of TPM, if you're not a subscriber, please uh, give it a try. Um, We'd really appreciate it. And that's how we run this operation. And uh, I think that's it for this week.
1: All right. See you next week. Later. The Josh Marshall podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen.